you can have a relationship that's really strong, but if you're not able to um, self-repair, it's ultimately a brittle relationship. You basically want to meet as many of them as you can because like you have a, like as an entrepreneur, you have a worldview, you have a way in which you're like, I can change the future. Very early on, adopt the mindset of like, this is, this is a volume game. I need to meet lots of different people to find someone who shares my worldview. Thousands of other applications that I had never thought of someone could think of and could do and could change the world with if we created that platform for everyone even if they love your product you probably how often would you answer a survey for a company maybe once every two three months maybe if you don't have people dying at the same rate that you have today sort of somewhat balancing that through you know age that presents a very interesting question around like do we suddenly have to all control you know how many kids you can have if you can have kids maybe you can't keep extending your life if you're gonna have kids like what and hey there everyone welcome back to future of product today my guest is sean bossy co-founder at kuo uh sean would you mind introducing yourself to everyone just telling us a little bit about who you are uh yeah and thanks for having me on max um I'm Sean. I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders of Kuo. Um, I come originally from a biotech and neuroscience background from Imperial College London. Um, I spent time there developing out a cutting-edge emotion recognition platform. Mm -hmm. Um, It was cool. It was fun at the time. I used to uh, plug it into my Alexa to make literal mood lighting, um, (laughs) plug it into my Spotify to have it tailor the music that it was recommending to me. but I couldn't think of like the commercial applications right away. Um, I spent time, so I I moved into working into a bunch of different health and wellness startups before I found my way into something called venture building. Um, I spent um, a bunch of time basically being an entrepreneur for hire as part of a collective of entrepreneurs called Prehype. And there I was building digital products over and over again. And I, um, I saw some problems that were related to understanding how um, customers interact with products, how they feel. Um, and that led me to build Kua. So it's a little bit, awesome. uh, little bit about me. Perfect. Yeah, let's, let's get right into it. Um, let's talk about that, that initial kind of build, right? Uh, what, was, what was it that motivated you to, to kind of put that together? Um, and, and what was that process like? Um, so, I mean, I, like, with the venture building stuff, we spent a lot of time building digital products for Fortune 500 companies. And whether we were doing things on a small scale or integrated fully into those companies in a, in a much larger scale, um, I kept seeing two challenges. One was that um, when you're trying to understand why users behave as they do, you have a couple of different sets of tools. One is like your product analytics, where you can basically look at what users are doing Um, but there you have, uh, like a lot of questions about why users are doing those things Like you might see Mm -hmm. someone, uh, drops off at a certain point or they give, uh, your product a low review after they have some interactions, but it's hard to actually pinpoint where the problems are and what's driving those problems. And so we would spend a lot of time doing surveys, interviews, focus groups, trying to get people to explain to us why issues were occurring. But Mm -hmm. what I noticed was that. Basically, every time we would do an interview, every member of the team would hear the same interview but have different interpretations. I think it's because they were frustrated here. I think this was confusing. I think, And all those different perspectives meant we were building out 
many different hypotheses, which we had to build many different features for in order to be able to test. And only about 20% of the features we developed were ever used again. So mm. there was just a lot of um, time and energy spent chasing down hypotheses that what we were really unable to do was just understand how users were feeling as they're interacting with the product and what was driving what they were saying and what they were doing. Um, so that insight was one of the major things that led me to build Kua, which is literally analyzing um, people's emotional states as they interact with products so that we can understand their behavior better. Mm. Um, and the second sort of thing was that almost every customer was expecting personalization um, from their digital products. But it was really hard to get good personalization going. Um, I think what I realized was that the way we do personalization today is quite limited. Mm. Um, basically, we'll go, Max, you've listened to some content that Sean's listened to. I'm going to recommend you all of the content that Sean listens to and hope that some of it sticks. Right. But yesterday, maybe you were stressed. The content mm. you need is very different to today. When you're relaxed, you want to go to the gym, you need a very different type of interaction. Without that context, it's really hard to be consistently relevant and reliable. Mm. Um, and again, that was underpinned by understanding how users feel as they interact with our products so we can make more interactive and better products. And so uh, that was that was what led me to Kua. Perfect. Now that, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, taking a step back though, when you were first building, you know, kind of the idea for Kuo before Kuo, right? When you were using it to personalize your own Spotify uh, yeah. recommendations. Well, what was kind of the thought process there, right? Like what, what led you to kind of think, hey, what if my, you know, my computer systems were able to actually recognize how I'm feeling? So I think for me, there was, um, is I started off a little bit before thinking about what if my technology could identify mm -hmm. it. It started off with me going, looking at my um, physical health where I was mm -hmm. getting loads of measures, you know, from how much weight I could lift to how far I could run to all of these different things. I looked at my mental health and I was going, I basically have maybe a traffic light system. Mm -hmm. I'm good. I feel a bit tired or I'm burnt out. Like mm -hmm. those are my like, you know, you have a red, amber, green type system. And I just found that very difficult to manage because you tend to find that people go through burnout cycles like right. and i was going through that a lot where i was kind of you know, i was fine i was working really hard i'd burn out it took me a little bit of time to realize it and now i had to take a big rest or you know mm -hmm. like do a bunch of things to remediate that whereas you don't get that if you have some kind of like data that's able to mm -hmm. go hey you're like you're getting close let's let, let's take a rest and so right. My interest originally started around just being able to give myself the data. Um, mm. Then once you get the data, you realize you're a little bit lazy on it. And it'd be great if technology could just do things for you. Um, right. And that was kind of how it, how it led into me going, oh, well, maybe I could help myself mellow out with like some music that was work, like responding to mm. me and all of those types of things. Awesome. And it, and it seems like wearables are the natural kind of answer there, right? So well, what yeah. was kind of that initial process like? Did you kind of pick a specific kind of wearable and, and build out from there? Or were you like, I had the idea that this is going to apply to different types? We actually started off with um, not wearables. Uh, we started off with okay. uh, brain imaging data. Okay. Um, yeah, like, uh, basically, there's a bunch of brain imaging technologies mm -hmm. that um, 
where you can map out brain activity and oh, use wow. that to identify different states that people are in. Um, so we built out um, one of the big challenges is that you can't really do that outside of lab settings traditionally. Mm-hmm. And so we built out a advanced denoising process mm-hmm. to be able to make that technology work from headphones whilst being portable and whilst people were out and about. Um, and that was the starting point. Um, we used that to gather out large data sets of brain imaging and wearables data and mm. then train models that were able to work off of just um, wearables. And that was kind of to make it so that, because we never wanted to be doing a hardware business. Like hardware is um, challenging on many fronts. You'd have to, like, from our implementation, we'd have to convince people to give up their favorite Bose headphones, Sony headphones, whatever it is, to get these headphones that have an additional feature. It's very tricky. Audio quality is always going to be hard, things like that. So we never really wanted to, well, we at some point we did, but we very quickly moved away from that. Um, and so, yeah, like it, it was about how can we scale these insights with existing data and existing hardware. And that was what led us to wearables. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a cool sci-fi premise, at least, right? Like the the headphones that read your mind to some yeah. extent, right? But I, I would imagine that with wearables, it's a little bit easier to actually get yeah. into the market, right? Exactly. Um, got it. So c- can we talk a little bit about how you actually tangibly utilize, you know, AI to interpret these emotions? Like uh, wh- what kind of data is actually being fed in and then how is that made sense of? Yeah. Um, well, I'll ask you a counter question to answer yeah. that. Um, the last time you were stressed, can you think of some ways in which your body physiologically responded to that state? Yeah, I think increased blood pressure, right? Um, probably increased heart rate to some extent. Yeah, those are two great ones. Um, some people often notice that they start to sweat a little bit. Mm. Um, that can be driven by increases in body temperature. Um, mm. You know, when you think about um, like meditation structures, they'll tell you to like breathe really deep and really slow to counteract stress. That's because your breathing gets more shallow. It gets more rapid. Mm. Um, And these are the types of, well, and some people feel things like butterflies in their stomach. Um, There are all of these different ways in which our body responds to emotional states and wearables are gathering lots of data points on all of that from Mm. your heart rate to your heart rate variability, to your blood oxygenation, to your breathing rate, et cetera. Um, And we take in all of these different data points um, and feed them into our algorithms that use that data to identify emotional states. And we're looking at things like mm. um, a lot of different mathematical abstractions of that data. You know, what's the um, what's your baseline? How far from your baseline are you? How much variation is there in your signal? Um, like, what are the high and low frequency components of mm. the signal streams that are coming in? And we take all of that um, and use that to identify emotional states. I see. Interesting. So. How difficult is it? Because I know that you have a, a background in in bio, right? Yeah. How difficult is it to map kind of a physical um, manifestation of something like stress to it actually being that signal? Uh, it's relatively difficult. Um, mm. Like you need to have a way to generate good labels. Um, mm. We did that both through the brain imaging data and through um, asking people a series of questions um that would allow us to figure out their emotional states because you can't just Mm. ask people so you end up with this difficult problem around like what truth is when you're trying Mm. to tell your algorithm what to look for um and so that part was really difficult because 
basically being able to gather the brain imaging data required us to build a whole bunch of sensor tech that just didn't exist before. Mm. Um, so yeah, like I, I, it's pretty difficult to get that baseline of truth. You can't just be do you you know asking people all the time all of right. these different questions to figure out how they feel. Um, right. And so yeah, it, you know we spent at least um, two two and a half years like building out the fundamental technology um an ip that allowed us to even be able to do this in the first place very cool very cool uh, so let, let's talk a little bit about how uh Kuo actually came together right um so you've got a couple of founders co-founders yeah. um how did you guys meet what, what was that process like was it just kind of immediate that you knew that these were the folks um actually we had known each other <clears throat> sorry we had known each other for um over a decade um mm-hmm. we'd been uh like we'd been to college and university together. Um, we'd lived together. We'd worked together. Like it was a long time. And um, yeah, like I, I kind of knew that these were guys who I knew how to work with. I knew how to fight with. I knew how to, um, you know, we knew how to disagree and like resolve those kind of um, things in a way that works really well. And I think that like the way that I see like really strong, healthy relationships, which is very important when you have co-founders is that, it's not about how often you align. I mean, it is kind of about how often you align and agree, but I think one of the most important things is how well you can handle disagreement and handle conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause that basically, you can have a relationship that's really strong, but if you're not able to um, self repair, it's ultimately mm-hmm. a brittle relationship. And so I think these were some of the people who I had the best uh, foundations for like relationships that, can take impact and then like resolve and heal themselves. So that was kind of how I, how we decided that um, we wanted to work together. That's very smart. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's very easy to, to be in alignment with somebody until you fundamentally disagree on something. Right. <laughs> and you just never know when that, um, that thing that you've mm-hmm. never thought about before, you've never discussed before, right. you know, what if we applied it this way? Someone's like, I will never, like, I'll never do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that leads to like really interesting disagreements. And if you don't have a good protocol to like fall back on and ways of communicating about disagreement, it just makes things feel fragile. Yeah. Despite however, however often you might align. Totally. No, that's great advice uh, for any, any entrepreneur that's looking for co-founders. So all that being said, uh, taking a step forward, how did you guys get involved with Techstars? Um, so actually, we met one of the MDs, the managing directors of the London program, uh, a guy called Diamon Carey. Um, and we met him at a something called Web Summit, which is a big mm-hmm. tech conference. Um, and basically, we just left thinking he was crazy smart. Like he mm-hmm. very quickly got to like the challenges we were facing um you know gave us some really insightful thoughts on how we could tackle those challenges um and i just remember thinking i've never met someone who got to the point so Mm. quickly um and around that time we had been starting to think about how you know we would be wanting to sell into u.s companies Mm. um so we went well actually you know if the other like managing directors are as smart as this guy let's apply to uh, one of their programs. You know, we want to be out in the States. Let's apply to the LA program that was run by, that's run by um, a guy called Bob Moz, uh, mm-hmm. who's just, again, he was insanely smart. And he had this 
almost superpower of within three questions, he would get to the heart of the challenge that we hadn't solved yet. Like every time I'd come, I'd be like, oh, we've made this great progress, et cetera, et cetera. And he'd be three questions away from finding the thing that I was like, I have no idea how to solve this. And it's like my main focus. Um, and I, I just loved it because, you know, he would always get straight to the point. Um, and so, yeah, we applied to his program. We narrowly uh, missed it. Like we got to the final stages, um, but they didn't think that we were going to be able to get a project going with one of their corporate sponsors within the three-month length of that program. Um but you know, I guess Bob um, Bob liked us, um, and so he referred us on to the Austin program, run okay. by um, a guy called Amos uh, Schwartzkopf, and um, yeah, like we we immediately clicked with the whole Austin Textiles team, um, and that was that was kind of the journey. So we bounced around a little bit, a little bit of perseverance needed, yeah, um, and. Yeah, it, honestly, textiles was just incredible. Uh, that's actually why I'm uh, in San Fran at the moment. I'm um, okay. like we're here for something called FounderCon, where all the textiles founders get oh, together, cool, yeah. um, get to like share stories and meet investors and, and lots of different things. Awesome. No, that's great. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit more about about that, right? Like uh, as an individual, right? Beyond just a founder, what yeah. is it? What is that process like going through kind of the the valley of will they, won't they with investors? Uh, you mean like, will they make it to raise investment or how do you mean? More so just when you're trying to court investment, when you're trying to, you know, uh, create the scaffolding to take something to market, um, yep. and it's your baby and it's, it's very real to you, but you've got to, you know, make that vision clear to others. Kind of what, yeah. what are any tips or, or kind of, you know, things that you've learned along the way? I think, um, one of the things that we learned was that, uh, you want to think about, just like how when you think about selling something, you don't think about finding just like three or four people you want to sell to who you kind of like. You want to always look at like volume and how you can meet lots of different people. There are actually lots of investors out there and mm. you basically want to meet as many of them as you can because like you have a, like as an entrepreneur, you have a worldview, you have a way in which you're like, I can change the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and like this is going to change it for the better. You need to find those investors that are out there who see that same worldview, who like resonate with you. And so mm. I think, you know, fundraising is a, a journey where you get far, far more no's than you get yeses. Um, and I think that one of the things you can do is most like very early on adopt the mindset of like, this is, this is a volume game. I need to meet lots mm. of different people to find someone who shares my worldview Um Rather than trying to go like, you know, we've got this really great company, uh, you know, I'm going to find investors like really quickly with a mm-hmm. small number of meetings that can make it feel much more personal when you get um, no's. It also means that like, you know, investors like to invest in things that are going like, to clearly going to do well, kind of with mm-hmm. or without them. Uh, that's like the ultimate, you know, if, we're, if you're investing your money, you don't want to invest in a place where you're not sure if it's going to like pan out. Um which you kind of never know with startups, but there's definitely a sense in which you're like, if these guys are going somewhere with or without me, I would much rather be on the journey. And it's much easier for that to be true if you're meeting lots of investors and you're, you know, kind of, um, yeah, like kind of on that, like with or without any individual investor, you're going to make it across that line. 
perfect. No, great advice. Great advice. It's all about, uh, I like that you kind of mentioned the personal aspect, right? Um, how, how do you kind of make sure that you, when you're kind of doing these things that you're divorcing the personal aspect from the kind of business aspect? I think it <laughs> realistically, it takes um, time for you to just, you, mm. you get a lot of like no's and a lot of people asking questions where you're like, you haven't understood like, what we're trying to do here you're asking you're like mm-hmm. looking at the floor while i'm looking at the sky type thing right and i right. think that and you know the thing is like they're, they're all smart people they're just focused mm-hmm. on different um right. different types of innovation or different you know they don't quite see the world the future that you see mm-hmm. but um yeah i think basically it's a process of you kind of feel that heartache uh, a bunch of times by getting those nose and slowly over time you start to divorce like the personalness because mm. in the beginning it's very much it's like your baby and also you kind of go this is obvious there's no way that this doesn't exist in the future and oh. so when people start telling you that it doesn't in their view um mm. that can feel quite that can that can rock you but it's mm. it's just kind of one of those things that um you just keep going through it and as you encounter that more and more you kind of you kind of get used to it yeah yeah totally no that makes a ton of sense so, so let's talk a little bit more about emotional data kind of as a field, right? Um, yeah. So as a field, it is relatively new, right? Our, our ability to actually measure these things has, has kind of gone from zero to, to 100 really quickly. Yeah. Um, what kind of sparked your interest in the topic? Was it, was it kind of going from these multi, multidisciplinary fields of, you know, biofocus to tech? Was that kind of what, you know, instigated that thinking for you? Uh, I think... You know, as I said, originally I was um, like using the technology to enhance my everyday. Mm. I kind of actually wanted to go B2C originally, but it was by speaking to one of our um, investors and advisors, um, a guy called Phil Green, Mm. um, who was one of the ex-CFOs of Amazon. And he was um, basically, he helped us to see the bigger picture. He was Mm. like, you know, you can try and make some content that's a bit better, but you're going to, that's like, got this emotional component that can respond to how users are feeling. Mm-hmm. Or you could be a platform that enables every interaction with technology to mm-hmm. better and to have that layer of digital empathy. Um, and I think that once we started to see that big picture where we were like, oh, instead of trying to like make our own content, make that compete with everyone else's content, you're in, you're mm-hmm. essentially in, like uh, that kind of, you have a unique selling point around this ability to understand and interpret emotions, but you're basically in a like content game, which is a very crowded space. Um, being an enabler for anyone creating apps, content experiences, um, mm-hmm. that suddenly sparked my interest much more because that was originally kind of what I always saw as being so interesting where you can create this human machine interface. Um, where technology is smarter, more intuitive, but right now it lacks the ability to understand how, you know, one of the things that makes our interactions so great with each other is the ability to understand each other's states, to understand, oh, you kind of look confused. Maybe I'm going to re-explain that. Here you look excited. I'm going to like, you know, I I can share that excitement with you. Technology is always like that. And um, yeah, I think the sort of, point that phil pointed out to me was that 
just like how I was enjoying plugging it into my Alexa, enjoying plugging it into my Spotify, mm-hmm. there were thousands of other applications that I had never thought of that someone could think of and could do and could change the world with if we created that platform for everyone. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the implications on, you know, retention, right, are, are kind of obvious, I think. Yeah. But you gave an, uh, an example before we actually started recording um, that I thought was just super apt. Would, would you mind kind of reiterating that? Uh, yeah. Can you, can you remind yeah. me? Um, <laughs> so I believe it was uh, the person who, who views your application daily, right? But every time yes. that they view it. Got it. Um, yeah. So basically, I think one of the things um, that you find is that a lot of product teams today are working off of what we call behavioral data. So, you know, mm-hmm. your Google Analytics, your mix panel, where you're trying to look at what people are doing and understand how you need to improve your product and what you need to change. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the challenges that you have is that behavioral data is kind of one dimensional. And what I mean by that is you can have a person who opens your app or product uh, every single day and every day they're getting more and more frustrated. They're getting closer and closer to churning, but Mm. from their behaviors, you're not actually able to pick up on that. You know, they open the app every day, they go in, they do the same like five minute session and they leave, but they're actually getting more frustrated. You're missing that whole dimension of the experiential data. But you can also have users who are opening your product once a week and they look like they're less engaged, but actually it's the highlight of their week. They love every session. They're never going to leave. Without having data on experience as well as data on what they do, it's very hard to holistically understand um, why your users do what they do and how to build and respond to them. And that's one of the big ways in which adding in emotional data just levels up how companies understand their users and build for them. Mm. Um, beyond then actually being able to respond to those states as well, not just build for the audience, but make it personalized to those individuals. Totally. No, it's such a good example, right? Because I I can completely see, even like in some of my own workflows, that if if we're benchmarking on somebody coming in every day, right, we're actually taking the opposite learning from what we should be, which is that this person who's actually incredibly frustrated is probably going to churn we should make sure that our product is tailored the exact way that it is to them because they love it so much, right? Exactly. Exactly. There are so many like false signals out there because Mm -hmm. like essentially when you just look at what people do, it's like trying to watch a play, but you're looking at the shadows of the actors. You're not Mm. watching them. You're not seeing their actual expressions and how they're interacting. And it just makes it a bit of a mess. It's a little bit blurry. Um, So yeah, like when you add in the experiential side, Mm. It's like having a person in the room there who can just be like, oh, actually, that's really interesting. They, they're really not enjoying this bit. Mm-hmm. We should be doing this differently. Um, which when you think about it that way, I always find that it, it feels a lot more obvious that you kind of want to have someone there. Like if you could in an ideal world, you would have someone right. there understanding how people were interacting with your product all the time. So you could really just fix it for them every time. Um, but you know, yeah. when we're doing like apps and things at scale, mm-hmm. you can't do that. So right. the way to get around that is to actually have intelligence that's able to understand that at scale automatically. And that's, that's kind of what we are. Totally. And that's kind of the, the value of a focus group, but across your entire customer cohort. Exactly. Well, with focus groups, you're still limited to how, mm-hmm. like how well people can articulate themselves. 
Um, we have recency bias when we report things. We have intensity mm-hmm. bias. You know, we'll remember the best and worst things and the things that happen at the end. That's kind of how our brain chops up memories. The problem with that is, you know, I could have a user journey with 30 different touch points. And, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a lot of my content is um, music content that's playing in the background mm-hmm. of, say, an exercise class. Um, the challenge that you have is that, like, well, you know, how do I understand how much music is contributing towards the experience? We kind of know it is intuitively, you know, like if you did a, a, an exercise class without music, it's harder, <laughs> feels less enjoyable. But like, how do I understand which songs are pushing you in the right or the wrong direction? Well, mm-hmm. I don't have any way of understanding that. I kind of know you churned at the end, but I probably played you a thousand tracks before you churned. Like mm-hmm. you have all these complex questions um, when you're going, how do I curate content? What content do I give? When do I give it? Um, that's also on top of, you know, all of those things, like, I think actually from their behavior, this is good or this is bad, but I don't, I don't have a good sense of it. So there are, there are many different layers, I think, to how having an understanding of your user's experience quantified, um, really changes how you see them and how you understand them, moving them away from numbers that you look Mm -hmm. at to like people that are experiencing your product in a certain way. Interesting. Okay. I see what you're saying. So it's, you know, we kind of went through this uh, voice of customer revolution these last few years, I would say. And, and yeah. it seems like your product and, and some others that I've seen that that do different things, but somewhat similar, trying to get to the actual core of that experience are yeah. actually going a step further than that. Yeah, it's the difference between, you know, there's what people do, there's what people mm-hmm. say, but then there's how they think and feel. And, mm-hmm. you know, even if people want to tell you the truth, right. they can struggle to like, articulate it because of the way our brain chops up memories um but also like you have to be asking the right questions it's really hard Mm -hmm. to figure out what questions you need to ask whereas if you just can measure my users who churn they Mm -hmm. have this emotional profile my users who retain they have this emotional profile right this is how every piece of content is pushing users towards or away from that experience this is how every interaction we have is doing that you don't need to know what questions to ask you don't need to um sort of um, take as many guesses, you're actually just mm-hmm. able to understand how your interactions are influencing your users and, and how to build for them better. Interesting. I see. Yeah, I, I would imagine, you know, somebody who's on the cusp of churning is also not exactly <laughs> super excited to fill out your survey, right? <laughs> exactly. That, that's another great point. Like, you, you know, there are total limitations on how often you can ask people these questions. Mm-hmm. Like, even if they love your product, you probably... How often would you answer a survey for a company? Maybe once every two, three months, maybe, Maybe. you know? And so how many interactions are you going to have with their product? Mm. They're just not going to get any insight. I'm like, well, you know, like you could go over three months. You can very quickly go from loving a product to hating Mm -hmm. it. Right. How do I pinpoint exactly how that happened from a Mm. survey is, is pretty rough. It's pretty difficult to like get that layer of understanding it's much easier if you could just be understanding them all the way through every interaction they were having. And then, you know, you, you can start to separate out, like some people might ex- exhibit some behaviors and churn because, you know, I don't know, their financial situation changes dramatically and they love your product, but they have to leave. You can right. at least discount that. You can be like, look, this is, this person mm. was having an experience where they were like really loving what we were doing. They right. churned anyway. I probably can't actually fix that group of people. You know, I can't change the way the world works, but there's a whole other group of people who are having a really bad experience who churned. Like this is something I want to like focus on. This is, so you can separate out noise from signal much mm. 
much better um, when you understand experiences. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Makes a ton of sense. So all this being said, how are you actionably, who are you actionably selling to, I should say? Um, who who do, kind of is your ideal customer profile and what do they look like? What are their needs? Um, so we are selling to, um, like within, sorry, uh, basically we okay. sell to um, B2C mid-market enterprise level um, content companies, typically apps. Mm. Um, that's your, you know, basically wherever you're cur- creating and curating, um, mm. an experience for your users. So, you know, an example of a client that we would love to work with, um, is a company like Spotify where, mm. uh, you're curating music, um, for your users all of the time. Music is an incredibly emotive experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, literally, like I said, you know, this started off with me in, in yeah. my house, building playlists that were responding to my states. I always just thought that that was such a fun application. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's those types of apps and companies um, where basically your user experience is really important mm-hmm. and ideally you'd love to personalize to your users in like a more impactful way. Interesting. It's, it's funny that you've already done kind of the proof of concept for them. So <laughs> Spotify, where you at? <laughs> um, awesome. If anyone's listening from Spotify, uh, happy to chat anytime. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Step your game off Spotify. Yeah. Um, so l- let's talk about kind of the difference between let's let's keep using Spotify as an example, right? So the way that they're curating music now, like you said, is kind of looking at you're connected to this person, kind of that social networking uh, problem that we all talk about in linear algebra, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it even, well, I know that Spotify doesn't have, to, it's not necessarily people you're connected to. It's basically mm-hmm. looking at songs that you've listened to and then taking an approach that's kind of like collaborative filtering where we go, well, mm-hmm. who else listens to all of these this type of songs? We can create different profiles of people who are similar to you based on things that you've listened to across mm-hmm you know, a period of time and then doing recommendations based on, um, you know, like taking, so there's all the music you've listened to. There's people who've listened to those songs and they've listened to other songs. And Mm. so you kind of go, well, hopefully if you've had this big overlap, these other songs will also be relevant to you type thing. Interesting. So if we were talking, you know, just wholesale recreating that algorithm around emotional insights, what would that kind of look like? Would there would that be a layer on top that's saying now out of this bunch, here's the ones that align with this kind of emotional state? Yeah, well, it's things like being able to go, cool, you've all listened to that music, but actually there is a bunch of music where one person listens to it to relax, the other person listens to it to get excited, the other person oh. listens to it to like, um, you know, help them focus. Like these are all very different motivations and without being able to understand your motivation for listening to it, when mm. I build you your workout playlist, I'm going to chuck in a whole bunch of stuff where you're like, this is, you know how, you know how sometimes you have those playlists and you're just skipping through things being like, this isn't it, this, mm-hmm. isn't, this isn't it. Totally. Like it, it's because like there's just this huge shift in context. Like you might mm. even like, I often find that there are lots of songs that I'm skipping in a playlist where I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like I, I mm-hmm. would listen to this. I, I do right. listen to this in different settings. It's not what I wanted right now in the gym it's not what i wanted to help you focus and you lack because you lack context over Mm -hmm. when and why and how people are listening to it or you know really like what is motivating them to do that Mm -hmm. you can't um you can't build for them correctly 
Right on. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, data privacy, right? Because um, emotional data is kind of like we talked about this this newer kind of data point that we're able to collect now. Yeah. What are some of the precautions that you see as being important within the market, and, and how can people kind of rest assured that their data is being acted upon in a in a way that they would favor? Yeah, I think this is something that we think a lot about at Kuo. Um, you know, there's a bunch of com- types of companies that we don't work with and never will work with, things like gambling companies, et cetera, anywhere mm-hmm. where addiction is involved because totally. you don't want to, like, play on um, right. people's emotions against them. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, basically, the way that... Um, the, the ways that... Well, already, you know, mm-hmm. most wearables companies are focused on being very um, like data first in terms mm-hmm. of uh, keep putting their users at the heart of how their data can be used. So users always have to opt in to share data already, and you have mm-hmm. to specify how you're going to use that data. And that's something that we think is very important um, because you know if you are going to be taking that data and using it to build experiences that are curated to people, mm-hmm. it should be something that they want. Um, and so I think that really just one of the things that's really important here is making it clear how your data is going to be used to make a better experience for you and for everyone else. Um, and making it clear, like what that trade-off is. So, you know, if it is your Spotify, like how you're getting better recommendations. Um, if it's a mindfulness company being like, well, we can now see when you're stressed and interact with you, um, when you need us most, you know, if it's an ed tech mm-hmm. company, we can see what, when you're focused, what's helping you to learn faster and we can give you more of that content, help you learn those skills that you were trying to learn faster. If, it, if it's a right. game, like I can see when you're excited, when you're enjoying it and I can give you an experience that's more immersive and tailors better to you. So it's mm-hmm. that type of, um, interaction that we can, uh, build in, um, that users want to share the data for, you know, like if I can share um, some totally anonymized data on how I'm feeling and then mm-hmm. I can learn a language faster, that's, you know, if, I, if that's something I wanted to do originally, that's right helpful, you know, just better mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I Your entire answer is great. Um, kind of what you mentioned about like gambling companies, for instance, right? I think that's super prescient. Um, can I ask, do you, so I, I really appreciate Quo's uh, focus on not kind of exploring those types of opportunities. Yeah. Do you see it as a, a foregone conclusion that that market still will have somebody serving it um, kind of without some type of regulation? I Well, one thing that I think I've heard about the gambling industry is that they mm-hmm. already have like polygraph type machines they set up to people oh. during... Um, like testing phases of how they lay out like casinos and how they like do machines. Yes. Like a lot of these things are already kind of mm. tested. Um, right. And, you know, it's just the difference is that it's kind of tested on a general setting rather than mm. on a really personalized setting. Um, yeah. Like that's yeah. like, I think it, it already is happening. I think it will continue to happen, but the difference mm. is it won't happen in a way where they're actually able to sense how you're feeling. Uh, it's kind of done in a more generalized setting. I see. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. They're still kind of doing that gamification, but more so as a uh, yeah, as in the build process. So to say. yeah, yeah, <laughs> I see. Exactly. Um, cool. Well, kind of a non sequitur here. Uh, once, what's one piece of sci-fi tech uh, that you think will exist within your lifetime? Um, this is something I uh, um, talk about a bunch with my friends. Um, 
basically there when I was um, studying at Imperial, uh, mm. there's this paper that I read that stuck with me where they've basically figured out how to reverse age mice. Um, mm. They took an old mouse and they stitched all of its um, blood vessels to a young mouse and they were basically sharing a circulatory system and the old mm. mouse got like its muscles got denser. It started to be younger. It lived for, I think like 60% longer than mm. a regular mouse. And I seeing that we figured it like, I think the conclusion was that there's some kind of bloodborne agent that controls aging to some degree. And I was mm. like, well, if we know that now, by the time I'm 70, the the speed at which we like um, build technology, I would assume that reversing aging is going to be a thing that we can do mm. um, by the time I'm old, which is which opens up all sorts of interesting uh, ethical and uh, yeah. other conundrums, um, sustainability wise, resource wise, etc. Totally. I uh, not not to go too far off track, but let's talk a little bit about some of those, right? Because I uh, I think you're right. I, I've also seen the same study. Um, it's very fascinating. I, I have seen, you know, on the far end, the early adopter kind of cohort in tech, right? People yeah. who are already using younger people's blood. Um, yeah. But, you know, that notwithstanding, let's talk about some of those kind of uh, consequences that you were you were mentioning earlier. I think that there, you know, if people start to be able to live much longer or even potentially indefinitely, depending on how far mm-hmm. you can take that, um, you have a lot of really interesting questions around, well, what happens to people's wealth? Someone becomes a millionaire or a billionaire, they never have to work again. Right. Then you start to have this like bigger um, economic discrepancy. But then you also mm-hmm. have things like, well, how you know can we all keep having kids at the same rate if right. we can all live a much longer life? Because the, the world will become exponentially more crowded. You know, like right. the world is already. Some people would say overpopulated. We, we already have like mm-hmm. um, a population that's hard to sustain and you know, causes a lot of different climate issues, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have people dying at the same rate that you have today, right. sort of somewhat balancing that through, you know, age, um, the, that presents a very interesting question around like, do we suddenly have to all control, you know, mm-hmm. how many kids you can have? If you can have kids, maybe you can't keep extending your life if you're going to have kids. Like what, and mm-hmm. that type of reasoning is just something that we, haven't done before you know like it's very difficult to um to have those even to have those conversations but to figure out what you can do in a way that's that's ethical no totally yeah i uh that's that's really interesting i um i wonder about that right because it does seem that we're on the intersection of a lot of these sci-fi technologies kind of coming together um Um, so uh sean thank you so much for joining me this has been super fun uh where can people find you follow you uh find me follow me on linkedin or you know check out uh www.kuo.io perfect awesome thanks again sean thanks for having me on max have a good one